Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. This week we'll be looking at a proposal for a new law in Italy that may kill the non-performing loan securitization market. Now, boo-hoo, poor professional investors in risky products, you may think. But as we'll hear from George Smith, our European securitization reporter later, this proposal could have damaging consequences for Italy's banks. We'll also be delving into some changes ratings agency Moody's is making to how it, how it assesses hybrid capital and what that means for debt issuance with everything from corporates down to supranationals or up to supranationals perhaps. Uh, and that'll be with our corporate bond reporter, Mike Turner. And we're also going to be following up on a story we've covered for the last couple of weeks on the podcast, and that's whether the European Union in its capacity as a bond issuer could offer some guidance to its peers as to what investors really want after some unspectacular recent deals. And Ralph, you're actually in Munich this morning, aren't you, where you've been to our big cover bond event? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, The... uh, we, we, as well, I say we, the wider company, our cousins at Euromoney conferences team up with the European Covered Bond Council every year to uh, run the Covered Bond Congress. And that takes place over a couple of days. Uh, and this year it was in Munich. It's a, it's a great conference. It's vast. It's really a sort of big bank funding conference. It's, it's way beyond uh, simply just covered bonds as far as the, I guess, the participants are concerned. And then the whole thing culminated last night in our very own Global Capital Covered Bond Awards. Was that fun? Oh, that was fun. Of course, it was fun. They're always fun. Um, I certainly, I've certainly not heard any too much, too much complaining um, from from uh, people who were there, um, which is good. Everyone seemed to have a good time. Uh, you certainly hear about it when they don't. And um, yeah, it was a lively event, and it was a very lively conference, and 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 very interesting too. What were the sorts of things people were talking about? Well, uh, well, I was I was lucky enough to host a couple of um, panel discussions at the conference. One was on secondary market liquidity, uh, and the other was on the Kenyan housing market, which is not something I, I ever thought I would um, have have the joy of getting involved in. But um, the secondary market liquidity one was particularly uh, well attended. It was a very lively session, and um, I guess one of the reasons is uh, because as one of my panelists told me before we went on stage, how are we supposed to have a panel discussion on secondary market liquidity and covered bonds when there is none? But this is a bit ironic, isn't it? Because um, covered bonds are officially classed as a as a high quality liquid asset, aren't they, in regula- regulatory terms? And, that you know, banks can hold them um, in special portfolios because of that. And also, you'd think that after the European Central Bank had withdrawn from its massive appetite of buying covered bonds for the last few years, there'd be a lot more paper sort of out there in the market to buy. Yeah, well, I think for the recent uh, new issues, there probably is a bit more liquidity in the market. Um, it's not 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 loads, I'm hearing, um, but it's better. I, I suppose you have this sort of slightly two-tier market now perhaps where as a consequence of a period of very low interest rates and uh, the European Central Bank buying 40% of every deal for a long period of time it pushed coupons right down so there are a lot of 0% coupon bonds out there uh, a lot of them on the ECB's books I guess and the problem with that is rates have risen so far since that nobody wants a 0% coupon bond now because you only get paid for it when it redeems at par um, in, in the years to come 
people are much much keener to buy the recent new issues with on the run coupons um but even there uh you know people on the panel yesterday were telling me they still think it'll take a couple of years for um the market to get back to normal uh, in terms of its its liquidity and you mentioned kenya is there a cover bond market there there is not no there is not the um the kenya mortgage refinance company um i had the pleasure of interviewing its ceo joe Altetia, on stage um that institution is uh, part of the government's effort to grow the uh, private housing sector in the company sorry in the country and um it's it's issued it's issued debt but it's issued a, a kenyan shilling sort of private placement um worth about nine million dollars and placed with local pension funds it is however like um pretty much every other issuer on earth and certainly uh issuers involved in the housing sector working on its next next deal and that one that it wants to be a green bond okay well we look forward to that yeah um and in the meantime there's been activity in one of the other liquid markets supposedly which is the supranational sovereign and agency bond market in euros where despite its uh, glamorous status this has actually not been a great market since issuance resumed in late august has it ralph no no that's right um it's it's interesting typically september is uh, an absolute boom time for this market you get a lot of deals and they generally perform very well they're well oversubscribed and so on this year that's not really been the case uh certainly not uniformly um they're first of all issuers started to come back a little bit earlier uh than in previous years and so deals were happening really um sort of middle mid to late august and they didn't all fly really i mean they got done but some were unsubscribed and you know others performed a bit poorly in the secondary market and there's there's been various theories as to why that was uh, which we've discussed before issuers came and did a lot of their funding at the start of the year which means they can afford to bring slightly measly price deals now because they don't have to worry about coming back to the market so much and the other the other big theory well there were two others one was uncertainty over rates and volatility and swap spreads which changes the uh value of of you know the bonds you think you're in the primary market uh buying um and the other thing is of course the european union which has become this sort of huge oil tanker uh in this market that all the other smaller craft have to sort of navigate around and um they hadn't done their uh first syndication of the autumn until this week and people had been sort of waiting for it to come and really to sort of do its deal and as as they describe it set the tone um by which i think they really mean figure out what premium people need to pay to get a deal done and so the eu did bring its deal this week it issued a five billion euro long seven-year bond um how did it go uh very well indeed uh, very well indeed and there were two contributing factors to that the first was it set the size from the outset at 5 billion euros creating a sort of degree of scarcity and a degree of certainty that you weren't going to be you know buying into either a 5 billion or a 7 billion issue you know the, you knew what the size was and you had to get your orders in uh, the other thing they did frankly was pay up they uh, the they typically um start their pricing guidance with a four basis point new issue premium implied uh they typically then tighten that pricing through execution and end up paying a two basis points premium uh for this deal 
those involved in it, so the, the banks that worked on the deal and the issuer, calculated the new issue premium at three basis points, and people off the deal calculated it somewhere between three and four basis points. And the result of that was they had a nine times subscribed order book. Okay, so that's the EU's deal. But what effect does that have for any other issuer? Why is it relevant to anybody else? Well, plenty of people in the market think that this now shows the way for other issuers to come to the market with the right sort of level of premium to pay. Uh, in reality, it may be a bit more nuanced than that. Some issuers are very close to the end of their funding programs, as we mentioned, and don't need to necessarily worry about um, incentivizing uh, investors to show up in as greater numbers. Um, the EU certainly isn't in that camp, though. It has two more syndications to do uh, this autumn, and uh, it, this, you know, will certainly have uh, encouraged its own investors that this is how it will, you know, carry on these deals for the rest of rest of the year. As someone who doesn't really, uh, you know, as someone who's never really covered the SSA market, I do find it a bit peculiar that the, the way people talk about it. Uh, you know, it's inherently a bit odd that um, people should think issuers need to look to other issuers for guidance on how to approach the market or how to price their deals. After all, every syndication is a completely its own thing. You know, the, the, they, they go out with a deal, they build a book of demand, they see how big it is, and they make a pricing decision on the spot. They're not priced in advance. So, um, you know, it, it, why is it that there's this sort of weird dance where you know, people are kind of looking for guidance. Well, it was ever thus. I mean, before it was the European Union with its huge program, it was um, it was the other it was the other big issuers in the SSA market, um, the European Investment Bank, KFW, the German Policy Bank. Um, I think it happens because, firstly, when when these big issuers are in the market, they tend to get like the sort of full attention. So there's a natural sort of need to kind of navigate around them and for smaller issuers it tends to benefit to either sort of try and get ahead or wait and see what happens and then come afterwards but not to go up uh, head to head with them i think the other big point about the ssa market is that it's full of frequent issuers who come to the market many times a year and probably to a greater extent than many other groups of borrowers it's a more homogenous asset class a lot of the paper is triple a rated uh, and people don't really tend to worry about credit risk here at all. And so they tend to think of the deals as very similar. You know, there are obviously distinguishing factors between issuers, like often the size of their program or, you know, how much investor outreach they've done or whatever it might be. But it's it's vastly different to when you consider, say, the corporate bond market, where even companies within the same credit rating bracket or within the same industrial sector all have very different qualities uh, from each other. So, Ralph, the big borrower, the EU, has come. They've done a successful deal by paying a little bit more. Does that mean everything's going to be shiny and happy in the SSA market now? Uh, well, we shall see. But there was further uh, cause for optimism, I suppose, when the European Central Bank made its interest rate increase on Thursday. And as we mentioned, it put up rates to 4%, which is a record uh, record high for the ECB. Um, it was expected, but I think the key point was that the ECB president, Christine Lagarde, said that this was the level for rates that if it was maintained would push inflation down in a timely fashion. And that gives the market a lot of confidence or, you know, the market has decided to feel confident about the fact that that means that the ECB must therefore be at or very close to the top of its uh, rate raising cycle. And the, the benefit of that is it gives investors certainty that they can buy bonds and not 
see them lose value because the ECB keeps putting up interest rates. And that's especially pertinent for uh, long dated bonds. And uh, we certainly saw some evidence this week of that, um, I guess, renewed investor confidence when when Agence Française Development, a French development agency, as probably suggested by the name, uh, brought a 500 million euro uh, 15 year deal. Now, 500 million euros is is not a benchmark size in the SSA market. It's it's half of that. Um, but the point was, this deal was 12 times subscribed, and that was a record book for the issuer. Well, that's a positive note, Ralph, but I'm sure we'll find plenty more angst in the SSA market over one or two basis points to talk about in the coming weeks. Oh, I, I certainly hope so. It's what we all live for, isn't it? Um, yes. But in the meantime, we're off to Italy to talk about NPL securitizations and hybrid capital. Hello, Mike. Hello, George. Welcome to the podcast once again. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Ralph. Uh, now, uh, George, first of all, um, you've written a story this week about a proposal for a law, a new law in Italy uh, that aims to help uh, borrowers in distress, uh, I think it's fair to say, um, but actually threatens the uh, system they've developed there for securitizations of non-performing loans, which has, has really been a, a great help to the Italian banking sector. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what is being proposed in Italy? Yeah, so this is a proposal that these borrowers of uh, distressed loans can buy back their own loans, which have been sold uh, before 2022, um, if they got into distress between 2018 and 2021. And Given the loans have been sold, they would buy them back at a premium over the price they were sold for. Okay, so these are loans that were, let's say, they had a, they were they were loans. I don't know, give them a value of par when they were when they were first taken out. Uh, the borrower then got into distress. They then became non-performing loans or NPLs, as we'll we'll call them after this. Uh, and um, I guess they ended up in these securitizations, and the value of the loan obviously plummets. Um, and that's how the um, NPL securitization buyer has sort of profited from the situation because they expect to get sort of better recoveries later on. Uh, but now the borrowers can effectively settle these loans for, I guess, much less than par, but um, but at a premium to whatever the uh, whatever the holder of the loan paid for them. Is that right? Yeah, that's the that's the principle. People are saying this is going to kill the MPL securitization market. Now, first of all, why can you give us a little bit of background as to why that was such an important market for Italian banks? And and then we'll come to why this law would kill that off. Yeah, so Italy has spent quite a while since 2016 pretty much building up this market because they had very high NPL holdings in their banks. Uh, it was around 17% by the time they started a scheme called GACs, which guaranteed the senior tranches of NPL securitizations. That's a government guarantee, right? It was a government guarantee, yeah. And across the, the life of the scheme, which closed in 2022, they pretty much guaranteed about 20 billion euros of senior tranches of these securitizations. Um, 
What effect did that have, first of all, on um, on the uh, amount of MPLs um, Italian banks had in their portfolios? You said it was about 17% when they started. Yeah, so by the time the scheme came towards closing, it was down to 3% on average and 2% or less for some banks. Um, and that was really in large part because this just rehabilitated the NPL securitization market and brought back investor confidence, allowing these investors to come back in and start buying these NPLs and including a lot of foreign investors as well. And just to be clear, George, the, the, the way this works is that you get risk hunting investors who, who like the idea of investing in non-performing loans um, are the ones really taking the risk and buying portfolios of assets off the banks. Um, but they, but the, they finance this with securitization so that securitization investors who are much more risk averse can can provide most of the money through senior tranches. Right. And, and that's what was guaranteed as well by the government. So so it's, it was the, the scheme was meant to sort of make make the financing of portfolio sales cheaper. Is that, is that the way it works? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And the, the government didn't guarantee anything rated less than triple B. So in that sense, what they were guaranteeing wasn't especially on the risky end of NPLs, despite the asset class having quite a reputation for being treacherous. But they managed to find private sector investors who are willing to take on these NPLs and, and therefore take the risk away from the banks. They have, yeah. So why has the government um, decided to offer this? I guess it's effectively a sort of some sort of form of debt forgiveness after, after a fashion, perhaps. But um, it's why has the government come up with this idea for borrowers to be able to buy their loans back or basically pay them off early at a, at a, at a lower price? Well, the, the principle is that if these loans are being sold, then why not just allow the borrowers to buy them rather than investors and one source said to me that uh, you know they were often going to foreign investors which the populist government didn't like when they could be retained by Italian uh, borrowers themselves so that's kind of intuition behind the law. Okay but then so why then is this a threat to the MPL securitization market? Well the real the key thing that makes this a big problem for the MPL securitization market is that it applies retroactively to uh, securitizations that were sold before 2022. So investors buying them wouldn't have taken into account the possibility of a law coming in like this. And everyone I spoke to was pretty unanimous that the nature of that undermined the uh, confidence of investors. And, and one lawyer said to me that the Bank of Italy had criticized a similar proposal for its retrospective nature um in 2020 i think the the way npl purchases work and npl securitization works is that the buyer buys it at say 30 cents on the dollar and they ex expect to make say 40 or 50 um when when they eventually recover the loan and so they make a profit and that's what incentivizes them to buy the loans uh, from the original owner now in this scheme, they're they're being offered a premium over what they paid, aren't they? So why aren't they happy, and and why isn't that enough? Um, yeah, so the premium isn't isn't huge for one thing. It's it's only twenty percent unless judicial or extrajudicial proceedings have started, in which case it goes up to forty percent. Um, 
and particularly when you consider that this is being taken over the average price of a loan in the portfolio. This means that if you sold a loan at 30%, say, and you're paid a premium of 20% on the sale price, that's 36% total recovery. Uh, whereas, you know, in some of these, particularly for the kind of higher quality and secured loans, you could expect to recover up to 60%. So if the better borrowers come and take advantage of this option, then that is going to lead to losses relative to what you were expecting in the portfolio originally. Now, a, a surface uh, um, reading of that situation might be um, that it shouldn't really be that big a deal if people who bought MPL securitizations don't make as much money as they, they thought. That's not, you know, um, it, the securitizations are, uh, you know, uh, definitely among the hairier, riskier products. It is generally thought a more complex uh, products it's thought in the financial markets. Why? But it's it's not just as simple as that, is it? Because there are wider consequences of if this happens um, for, I guess, the Italian banking sector uh, more generally. Yeah, this is all about um, how Italian banks manage their books, basically. And when, I mean, the level of NPLs which had built up before GACs opened kind of illustrates how necessary it is to have a tool to manage this, particularly when there's a slight, there's a forecast of at least some rise in, in NPLs over the next 24 months. Um, and it could be a steeper rise if there's a steeper macroeconomic downturn. Um, but even in kind of neutral or positive times, there still are NPLs that kind of occur and you still need a way to get them off your books. Otherwise, they can just sit there and they can take a very long time to be resolved. So getting them off banks' books and into the hands of specialist services and investors who know how to deal with these kind of things has been a, a critical way for Italian banks to manage their liabilities. And I guess they have they have profit targets themselves and if the services that is and investors and if they can't meet those they just won't help Italian banks achieve those aims. Yeah well exactly and it's also the, the comes back to the confidence factor of uh, just whether they can trust the Italian government to keep this market stable and open and not legislate on it retrospectively yeah there's a whiff of emerging markets about that isn't there of uh of a state retrospectively applying laws that will then um affect investors in quite a significant way that's when i used to cover emerging markets that would come up every now and then and it'd be seen as part and parcel of what happens when you invest in those markets but not necessarily when you invest in italy yeah indeed so where were we at with the legislative process then george i mean how likely is this to come into effect presumably the government is now hearing uh left right and center from from people in in the market so this is a a truly terrible idea and they must not do it yeah well it has been quite kind of roundly condemned both scope and fitch have written about how it would cause damage and uncertainty in the in the market um but the process is is a little um, uncertain because the it refers to a kind of law proposal, and there are there are basically two options for how you can pass this. One is law decree, where the proposal comes into effect, and then Parliament has sixty days to sign it off. So one one source said to me, "This is like doing it and then having the debate. Everyone will have done will have taken advantage of it, and mm. then afterwards you can maybe say, oh, that wasn't a good idea.'" <laughs> um, 
And then the other option is to go through the normal parliamentary procedure, which can be extremely long. And if they do that, they'll hear a lot of feedback. Everyone will have a chance to kind of chip in. And I mean, I guess that offers a more dignified exit for the government because they can uh, water it down, fudge it and all the rest of it. And they can still say they've done something. But of course, it won't be the original proposal and the market will be saved and we'll all be happy. Is that is that how that's yeah, going to I mean, The topic is quite high on the political agenda now um, uh, for the reasons we were discussing earlier. And yeah, I mean, that there were definitely quite a few people who thought that that was the most likely um, approach or that they'd just kill the proposal altogether and not attempt to or, or redraft it significantly or, or come back with something. Yeah. So if they go down the parliamentary route, people are pretty sure it won't come to pass. Right. So from one very complex technical subject to another, we're going to be talking now about hybrid capital, which is the subordinated debt that companies, insurance companies and banks, although we're not talking about banks today, issue, which is treated in some ways like equity, or at least in part like equity. And this story is all about how much equity credit, as it's called, the rating agencies give to hybrid capital. And in particular, we're thinking about Moody's, um, which has um, changed, is changing the way it thinks about this issue, um, particularly in regard to the equity credit percentage it, it accords to hybrid capital issued by uh, ordinary companies and insurance companies. Now, Mike, you've been looking at this issue this week. Um, tell us what Moody's is thinking of doing. Yeah, so Moody's is has gone out to the market with a request for feedback on proposals to change uh, the way it the way it looks at hybrids, and the way it does it at the moment is it has uh, sort of five categories that a, a deal could fall into, ranging from absolutely no equity credit, so it's not hybrid in any way, to full equity credit, one hundred percent equity credit, and then it goes up in increments of twenty five percent for the, each category, and they're looking at changing it into. Um, three categories, so either zero, half equity credit, or full equity credit. So essentially what they're doing is simplifying the way they look at the market. Um, but with that, it takes some of the finesse out. So this could be you know, a boon or a problem. If you um, currently have securities that have got 25% equity credit, that will be bumped up to 50. Um, but at the same time, if you have um, securities that have got 75% equity credit, that will be bumped down to 50 um, and the, the reason that Moody's have told me they're doing this is because when they first came out with their methodology, um, hybrids and subordinated debt was, was pretty new. So they kind of had to, you know, cast a wide net, really, and try and work out what were the things that made a difference to a company's credit rating. Um, but now that they've got all the data and they've you know been doing this for, for a few years, they can see that many of the things that companies were reporting on or trying to achieve you know, didn't really make any difference to whether a company was going to default or not. So what they have done is just um, they basically realise they can use a more blunt instrument than they have been. And is this causing a stir in the market? It is, yeah. In uh, so it was in my calls around to various people in Europe. They many people hadn't really even heard of it happening. So um, you know, I, th I feel like this is a bit of a, a bit of a off the radar slow burn. But it will make a big difference because it fundamentally affects the way um, companies will approach the hybrid market. So in, in the US, it could be seen as uh, one 
one capital products banker called it the holy grail because whereas before um they would only receive us companies would only receive 50 percent equity credit for their preferred stock rather than their hybrid debt um they will now if everything goes through as proposed get the same level of equity credit for their hybrid capital structure um so this means that their interest is tax deductible so they get higher equity credit and um tax deductible making it tax efficient um debt so it it just works in all all forms for them and the us doesn't really have a hybrid capital market like the european one but th- that could change then potentially with this proposal at least from from the point of view of moody's yeah i think it could change i think what's probably more likely is that people in the us will just come to europe and print hybrid hybrid bonds um so It'll probably be more helpful towards reverse Yankee issuance in Europe than it will be in the US. That if maybe if every um, ratings agency followed Moody's lead, uh, that would sort of create a new market in the US. But the impression that I got is that it's it's going to be more of the same. But then the companies that can do hybrid debt or want to do hybrid debt will do so in Europe. Does this only affect investment grade issuers, Mike? I mean, typically that was what uh, the point of hybrid capital was, wasn't it? It was to or at least help beef up um, those companies' credit ratings as investment-grade issuers. But um, in your story, you talked a little bit about um, how it might affect junk companies too. Yeah, so speculative-grade names um, get treated a bit more harshly by by Moody's. Um, so they, whereas investment-grade companies, their debt might fall into one of three categories. Um, speculative-grade issuers can only fall into one of two, either zero equity credit or 100% equity credit. So they take out that middle bracket. And the middle bracket is where most companies' securities will fall into. Um, so the reason that Moody's tell me they've, they've done this is because speculative grade names are much more likely to default, much more likely to um, need coupon holidays, you know, not, not pay their coupons on their hybrids, um, which is allowable under the documentation and, and fine to do. But, you know, the nature of um, speculative grade companies or junk rated companies is that that's more likely to happen because their their cash flows and revenues, things like that, are less um, dependable than investment grade. And it's important for insurance companies too, isn't it, Mike? Yes. Yeah, so some some kinds of subordinated debt that insurance companies hold will get higher equity treatment. Um, so tier two bonds could get fifty percent uh, equity treatment in ke- instead of their current twenty five percent. And restricted tier one capital uh, will offer one hundred percent rather than seventy five percent. And this comes down to the the lack of finesse that Moody says they no longer need when looking at this stuff. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's worked out well for restricted tier one capital. So instead of getting bumped down to 50%, they get nudged all the way up to 100. It is one of the curious parts of the capital markets, isn't it, hybrid capital, where um, the rating agencies, although they don't intend to do this or even want to, they do take on almost the, the role of regulators in that they sort of their criteria end up shaping what actually happens. But of course, most companies have to cope with more than one rating agency. They're often rated by um, S&P or Fitch as well as Moody's. And, you know, presumably the the whole shape of the market will only change if Moody's, what Moody's is now allowing also works for the other two. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it will be rare for a issuer, particularly an investment grade issuer who might have multiple ratings to just want to appease one ratings agency. They want to appease them all. Um, but, you know, there's no reason that the others won't 
also consider this a good idea that you know the the brains that work at moody's um have come up with this for a reason you know like so so mm. this is presumably something that mm. p and fitch will also have noticed in the market that maybe they are mm. seeing things a bit too rigidly in the hybrid market for stuff that ultimately isn't that that important um well at least it's not important on a quantitative basis like a lot of ratings agencies also look at things or all the ratings agencies look at things on a qualitative basis as well so the mm. things that are getting knocked out of these buckets and uh, you know seen as important to decide whether something goes in bucket one two three four or five is now becoming a more qualitative aspect that they look at um which is harder to pin down and that also you know means that they can then use less um categories to to reference these things um but yeah so there probably won't you know there won't be a sea change in the way that the markets are approached until well at least s p does something similar um and and less so fitch and Mike, sometimes it all seems very theoretical because companies issue these hybrid capital securities, which are, you know, supposed to basically give them more equity credit on their balance sheets and therefore support their senior credit ratings by making their balance sheets look more, more, you know, less debt heavy, basically. But but it's all it's all sort of this theoretical stuff to do with criteria and so on and, and hypothetical situations. But there have been a few cases recently where um hybrids were actually sort of wheeled into action weren't they or, or you know something real happened to them yeah I, so basically it's a way for a company to raise more debt without in, increasing their leverage right so they can get more money and they but they yeah don't look like their leverage is, is spiraling out of control and the way they do this is by hybrid buyers accept a bunch of terms that you wouldn't ever accept on a senior deal such as um uh, an issuer so hybrids have very long maturities but they also have a much shorter call date and the expectation is that an issuer will call it on the first date and replace it with a fresh hybrid um in the real estate sector in particular spreads and yields have massively blown out um and then with you know rate rises from the european central bank um and, and the other central banks it means that it when it came to them in many cases, when it came to them refinancing their hybrids, they would much rather take the hit that comes from not calling. So if you don't call, the coupon goes up by by an agreed amount when you first printed the hybrid. Uh, they would much rather take that hit than get a new hybrid and have to pay loads, loads more, um, even if it annoyed the investors. So they, you know, so these are things that have happened in the investment grade market so for all moody's talk about speculative grade being the, the riskier one there's still risks in investment grade but this has largely been um stuck in the real estate market and that's why moody's has effectively carved that out um as a separate thing as part of its proposal and said that it will effectively be treated the same as it has been before and um of course these elements of risk occurring in in hybrids with them not being called and and the coupons not being paid things like that these are actually um what they're for isn't it i mean they these companies that are contemplating doing this or actually doing it are are using the hybrid in the way it was intended to basically give them a bit more financial flexibility when when times are tough yeah it was wild how um when so when around town a german real estate company started doing this stuff and started hinting that it wouldn't pay its coupons um you know, there's a right hoo-ha in the market, but this is all stuff that they agreed would happen. Um, mm. And, you know, investors actually, you know, kind of got their heads around it. And now we've seen some much more constructive approaches to real estate companies and their hybrid debts uh, because they've accepted that, 
you know, they, they need to work something out because the market just isn't there to carry on as it has been before. Um, but the thing that really got me is that bankers and investors just say, oh, hybrids, are, you know, often just say, oh, hybrids are just buying an investment grade company with a much higher yield. It's like they're ignoring the fact that the reason they get that high yield is because a company doesn't have to repay it when they think they will or mm -hmm. doesn't even have to pay mm -hmm. a coupon straight away. They can defer it. Um, so it's not like buying a company with a high yield. It's got all these other things that come with it and that can mm -hmm. can happen. Um, so, yeah, so I guess in a way, it if if Moody's is taking a more simplified approach, because I'm sure anyone listening to this, there will have been moments where, well, hopefully not, but probably will have been where eyes have glazed over because there's just so many different aspects <laughs> to hybrids. And as you say, a lot of it is theoretical, but simplifying it, is a good thing and as um someone from moody's said to me yesterday that financial engineering uh, and this sort of jiggery pokery is inherently credit negative you know making things less clear and more complex um is not a good thing when it comes to trying to work out where a company's financial standing is uh john it's not just the corporate sector though is it um or even just the insurance sector uh you've written a number of times now and we've talked about it on the podcast as well about how uh supranational institutions the multilateral development banks are considering hybrid debt issuance of their own um what's the latest with that yeah um it's this has been an interesting week because um the, this long expected development of multilateral development banks beginning to issue hybrid capital is finally about to start and in fact in one case it has started we're talking about the major mdbs some of the smaller ones have done um transactions of various kinds privately but but what's really interesting this week the african development bank which we've been following for a couple of years on this issue have finally brought out the public mandate for their first hybrid capital issue which will be a public deal um they they were on the road this week uh, meeting investors and the official roadshow starts today um so that will be an extremely interesting and important transaction um probably a billion dollars i that was i think the plan at one stage although they haven't said now but but um you know it'd be very very important because the uh, how it's priced will will be the essential thing um for this to be efficient and an, and an important new source of capital for MDBs, it has to be cost efficient. And so if they get a good price for it, um, the, the market will be off to a great start. If, on the other hand, investors say, oh, this is a bit new, you know, I'm going to compare it to corporate hybrid and price it like that, then, you know, it, it, it could be a damp squid. Well, that's an interesting point about the comparison, isn't it? Because um, it's not as if... Uh, every supranational institution is set up the same way. So for other institutions that are looking to or will eventually look to do these sorts of trades or issue this sort of capital, it, it's quite hard to sort of come up with a, a sort of a, a, a commoditized instrument that they can all issue in price or with, with reference to each other. I think there'll be I think there'll be sufficient commodification if you like i think the you know the the mdbs are you're right they're all, they are all different but on the other hand they are sort of different versions of the same thing and they have a lot of similarities um and but anyway the the bank capital market is um already copes with very sophisticated sort of you know fine finely detailed structures as does the corporate hybrid market yeah. so so i think i think it's not so much that i don't think that will be the problem i think it's the basic um 
enthusiasm of the investors and and how they're willing to price it. It's very very rare in capital markets that you get a security coming to the market where no one knows how to price it because almost every kind of bond uh, or, or other instrument has a has a clear set of comparable securities and you can argue about where it sits relative to them but everyone knows what the reference points are but this is different and you know there's considerable disagreement about how you know what these reference points should be really is it the same sort of investors well we don't know you know this is to be discovered i mean i think the the obvious constituencies will be ssa investors who are willing to venture two notches down in credit rating from AAA to AA minus, which S&P is rating the African Development Bank structure, um, and obviously get considerably more yield. Um, I can't even imagine the uh, the destructions, the SSA market, if a issuer doesn't pay a coupon or bring on a Well, rate. I think people people will, will know that this is completely different from senior debt, right? They, um, you know, they it is a different instrument. Um, but at the same time, the African Development Bank will argue that they're a very stable organisation. They have lots of ways in which they can keep their balance sheets safe, that they manage themselves to a AAA rating. You know, the, 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 the risk of a, of, of a write down of the security or of them skipping a coupon is really very remote. Um, but it's just how the market will price that. I think the other obvious constituency of investors will be those bank capital specialists who are willing to um, get far less yield than they would on the normal stuff they buy, but but you know have this much higher rated security in their portfolios. But it's not just the African Development Bank, is it, John? Uh, the World Bank has done something too. Yeah, and this transaction is very different. The World Bank is also on a track to issue public hybrid capital as a pilot. Um, but that probably won't happen till next year. But they have already done a private placement to one of their shareholders, the German government, which is 305 million euros. And, and this is just a sort of side deal privately. The, it wasn't announced. The, the German government announced it, but the the World Bank has not commented on it. But um, this is significant because it shows that there's appetite among governments to back the MDBs in this way, which is a more flexible than waiting for a general capital increase. The great advantage of this is that it um, it doesn't change the shareholder voting power. So Germany can give them more money without having to be given more share of the votes at the World Bank. And that that is a great thing. And, um, you know, it will be treated as 100% equity for the World Bank, which is just as good as the uh, ordinary capital in terms of increasing lending power. Um, but it will only pay as much interest as a senior bond.